The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. This podcast is supported by VEPLA, the Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. You're listening to PX71 Today. I'm Jess Noonan, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Peter Jewell. Today is an extra special podcast, and we're thrilled to be joined by the lovely Tamara Bretzi. Tamara is a partner at Norton Rose Fulbright and has been the president of VEPLA for almost 10 years. VEPLA is also the gold sponsor of our podcast. Pete and I have both known Tamara for many years through her capacity at VEPLA and also at Norton Rose. And I believe um, Pete and Tamara actually worked together many moons ago at um, Malvern City Council. Tamara has always been such a welcoming and warm figure and someone that I think we've all learned so much from for over the years. We've been so fortunate to have her support for the podcast and are very excited to speak with her today. Welcome to the show, Tamara. Thank you very much, Jess and Peter. Lovely to, uh, lovely to be here. Thanks for asking me. Tamara, with your career path, you were a planner, for, and I remember when you started out at the City of Malvern before you became a lawyer. What made you want to change over, and has that made you a better lawyer, having that planning background as well? Uh, well, what made me want to change over was that uh, I had started working at the City of uh, Malvern. Uh, it was the middle of a recession when I graduated from being a town planner and there were very few jobs around. I um, I had the benefit of uh, someone uh, looking out for me, I think, uh, and uh, found myself a job at the City of Malvern just working one day a week. Um, there was a hiring freeze on at the time and uh, the, the city wasn't allowed to employ me or this manager wasn't allowed to employ me. Uh, but he, um, I said I'd work for free, but he uh, re- refused to allow me to work for free and instead just paid me out of the stationary budget for the next uh, few months. So we had very expensive pens for that period of time. Um, but I had the benefit at that time of working with a couple of people who had been in planning for anything between 10 and 30 years, all in local government. Uh, And I uh, started thinking at that time about what it was that I was going to do with my planning career uh, and whether it was something that I wanted to stay in local government or uh, move into the private sector and what type of planning, et cetera. And law had always been something of interest to me, uh, but I had stuffed around a little bit in school and didn't uh, didn't get anywhere near the marks that I would have needed to get into law. Um, but I, uh, I had a, a very close family friend in Tim Biles and he, I went to talk to him about what it was that I might do to expand and explore my planning career. And uh, I told him that I thought that the law looked interesting and planning law looked interesting. interesting. And uh, he did a wonderful thing. He um, uh, told me that there was someone that I needed to meet uh, who had been a planner and then done law and he arranged for me to pop into VCAT or the AAT at the time to watch him give uh, evidence in an appeal. The case was about a billiard parlour in a little street off Chapel Street in Paran 
and the lawyer calling Tim to give evidence for the applicant was Phil Bissett. And I met Phil for the first time that day and I knew that I needed to give Laura a try and that I wanted to work for him one day. And so I applied to do law, uh, um, not expecting to get an offer, but I got an offer and thought, well, I better accept. Uh, and then I got through the halfway mark of the law degree and thought, well, I better finish. And uh, a couple of years before I finished my degree, I got a call from Peter Barber and Phil Bissett, who were at Deakins, which was the predecessor firm to Norton Rose Fulbright. And so they generously offered me a job working as a sort of unadmitted solicitor while I finished uh, my law degree. So. It's a bit of a long journey at that time, but uh, I think that I was just interested in uh, in exploring all of the different aspects of planning and all of the different ways in which uh, a career might evolve um, in the in the planning sector. So Tim is obviously a very good friend to the podcast. I think we've interviewed him twice over the years. Yes. Um, so I, w- I would imagine then that Tim was probably a fairly significant uh, mentor in your career as, as was uh, Phil Bissett. How important have these mentors been and, and perhaps others in your career? Uh, very. Um, mentors have been the source of um, uh, much um, delivering much confidence in myself to back myself, which is not something that I knew how to do early on at all. Uh, I've come to think, though, that as much as mentors are um, really significant and important, um, that sponsorship is actually something that's equally important as having mentors. Um, uh, Mentors offer insights into how it was for them or they might offer advice about how to tackle a particular situation and they allow you to observe what parts of them you admire and decide to adopt into your own practice, whether personal or professional, and to sort of take those things on your journey with you. But uh, sponsorship is really, to me, more about having people uh, in your corner who will back you and vouch for you uh, and put you forward for roles that you might not have ever dreamed of doing. Uh, they tap you on the shoulder when they think that you've not seen something that you should have and they're sort of looking out for you along the way. And I'm very fortunate to have had many, many kind and generous mentors and sponsors who uh, I think have kept me on track and uh, opened my mind to explore opportunities that I perhaps never dreamed I would um, do if it was just up to me or um, left, left to my own devices. That's a really nice way of putting it. Beautifully said, Tamara. Um, Vipla, you've been heavily involved with it for many years. Can 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 you tell our listeners who aren't in Victoria what Vipla is and and what it, what sort of what it seeks to do? Sure. So uh, as just said, Vipla is the Victorian Planning and Environmental Law Association. Uh, we describe it as a multidisciplinary professional association, which is concerned with. Uh, planning the environment and development of cities and towns and places. Um, We've got 1,300 members from around 25 different professional disciplines, which include planners and lawyers, but also urban designers, architects, developers, traffic engineers, uh, acoustic engineers, environmental scientists, economists, etc., Uh, It really encompasses all of the professional disciplines that are concerned with uh, planning, design, development and the environment. 
And we have a mix of members from both the public and private sector. So lots of local and state government professionals as well as consultants and private business owners. Um, the organisation was born in 1989, uh, um, not long before I was graduating from uni in that same recession. Uh, and it was really the vision of a founder and first president and one of my mentors and sponsors, Peter Barber. Uh, he wanted to bring together a group of people who um, were able to support each other during the course of a recession when there was very little work about. Other professional associations at the time were really single discipline in nature. So the Planning Institute, uh, the Architects Institute or the Law Institute or something like that. And Peter wanted to bring some colleagues together to as much have a good excuse to go out for a long lunch regularly as it was to, as I said, support each other during that time. So since then, it's uh, grown enormously and we now run uh, around 50 events probably each year, including about 30 seminars, which are now webinars in COVID world. And uh, social events, we run a conference for two or three days each year, uh, put out a quarterly magazine, and uh, we engage with government advising about government initiatives to, uh, I suppose, assist in understanding the perspectives of each of the professional disciplines that we, uh, that we represent. And Tamara, how did you originally get involved in VPLA? Was that through Peter Barber? Uh, no, actually, uh, I got uh, involved in the mid-90s mid when I first started working as a planner uh, at Malvern. Uh, a, uh, a planning consultant uh, who was doing some work with the city uh, invited me to the Vipla annual dinner, which uh, has now become this um, massive event every year that has about a thousand people come along for dinner on a Friday night. Uh, at the time it was a little bit smaller but it was still a big big event and uh, so that was my sort of first exposure to VPLA and then I got involved at that time with the Young Professionals Group uh, which was a, a sort of subset of the board of the organisation and then in uh, 2000, uh, another of my very dear mentors and sponsors, Cathy Mitchell, uh, who's the head of Planning Panels Victoria, uh, she was the vice president of VPLA at the time and um, she suggested that I should nominate to sit on the board. Again, another sort of example of someone looking out for you and um, making a suggestion about something that I might not have ever put myself forward for if I'd been left on my own about it. Uh, it was very controversial because it was the first year ever that VPLA had uh, more nominations than places available on the board. So it was the first year ever that there had to be an election. And uh, um, I've been sitting on the board ever since. <laughs> Fantastic. And now you're also the president, which is also yes, amazing. Yes, I've been the president for nearly coming up to 10 years and I've absolutely loved every minute of it. It's sort of the opportunity to uh, be a custodian of this wonderful organisation has really been quite a privilege and uh, I'll miss it enormously when I eventually step down. I think um, one observation I'd make about you is every time I see you speak in your capacity as president, you just look like you really enjoy what you do and there's just a lot of passion behind everything that you say, which is really nice to see. Oh, that's most definitely the case. I, I think it's uh, it's an organisation that just 
brings people together and that's uh, and shares ideas and uh, that's something that I take enormous energy from being able to facilitate those things. So, well, what I like too to know is it's a very broad church. I mean, not just in terms of all the different professions that are professionals that are involved from different streams, but it's 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 there's lots of goodwill and um, uh, it's it's fun to be part of. So it's not bitchy. It's not. Um, it's just a good good vibe about the whole thing. Yeah, I I think that's right and. Uh, and there's been a lot of, it, it sort of touches and concerns a lot of people um, and uh, there's no there's no real barrier to engagement with it. You can choose to participate or choose not to, but uh, I, I get the, the most enjoyment out of it is when I uh, can finish, finish a year uh, and see that uh, our participation from, um, from members and non-members has... Uh, has increased or has, uh, you know, been consistent throughout the course of the of that period. Moving on to your professional role, you're a partner at Norton Rose Fulbright. Mm. Uh, what type of work do you most enjoy in, in that sphere? Uh, yeah, I, uh, I lived overseas for a while when I was a teenager and at that time and since I've had the benefit of travelling a lot and so I've always had a real interest in cities and people and different cultures and languages and food. And so working as a planning lawyer really allows me to feed that interest every day as we work through cases which um, necessitate consideration of both the micro and macro uh, issues that arise in planning and development. Uh, my team at work will always tell you that I'm um, always banging on about devising a new system about something or uh, so I suppose that says that I really enjoy exploring uh, systems and strategies and thinking about the way that they can be improved mm-hmm. and uh, I love being presented with a really messy situation, kind of unpacking it, restructuring it, reordering it devising a strategy to achieve an outcome and working out what the law is that can best assist to deliver that and then go about implementing the strategy and uh, crossing my fingers and hoping for the best. So uh, I think all of that I get in spades in my in my role uh, at Norton Rose. So it's, it's good. Yeah. I was going to ask you um, what parts of the planning world disappoint or frustrate you, but it sounds like um, systems are certainly something that excite you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they can also be the source of much frustration, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> are there other things in the planning system that disappoint you or that frustrate you in your role? Uh, yeah, I think I think decisions that are made for politics and not for good planning reasons really irritate me. Uh, They're frustrating because there's no common purpose that operates to create the best places that we could possibly hope to create for people to live and work and play. And uh, so that's a a disappointment where that common cause, I suppose, is undermined by um, the desire to be re-elected. Uh, and perhaps the other thing is the sort of negativity, negativity rather about change coming from planning professionals who I regard their role as being uh, one in which 
they're there to uh, guide a city's evolution and whose profession is inherently about change. Uh, so when I come across negativity about that or about exploring the idea of change, uh, I, I find that frustrating. And uh, maybe the other thing is the sort of lack of resources that are in available inevitably in our system and a high degree of regulation, which means that processes are slow and expensive and that has a direct effect on the capacity of a city to deliver affordability for its citizens. That's sort of a nice tie-in to the next question I was going to ask you, which is around um, strategic planning. You obviously, in your role, um, I know that you you're involved in a lot of planning panels, which mm -hmm. is generally um, put in the strategic planning kind of space. Do you think there's any systems that can be improved in that sense, particularly from a Victorian perspective? Uh, yeah, I've been an advocate for a long time for an independent review body like VCAT or planning panels to have powers to review a proposed planning scheme amendment where the council or the minister have either not considered a proposal or have refused to allow a, a planning scheme amendment to embark upon a process of public exhibition and consideration. Uh, I think it's one aspect of the Planning and Environment Act that I don't think has stood the test of time. We, we live in a world now where we rely far more heavily on the private sector to generate proposals and the design of planning controls and strategy and to deliver infrastructure uh, and the ability to uh, embark upon changes to planning law in planning in the form of planning scheme amendments is a huge part of being able to facilitate that joint engagement with a city by both the public and private sectors. Uh, given the very significant levels of public participation and appeal rights in a VCAT context these days, it feels a little archaic that there's no review mechanism for public uh, for um, planning scheme amendment refusals, particularly when so often those decisions are made with more than a massive dose of politics as the influence rather than uh, inherently good planning principles. Uh, so that would be my number one improvement, I think, in that strategic space. Tamar, I think with this recession that we're in now, this is, you know, never waste a good crisis. Much like when you started work, it was an awful time. A lot of innovations came out of that time. Are you expecting you know, breakthroughs and big jolts forward in in the way we do things because of the crisis we're in? Uh, look, we can remain hopeful. I think it's uh, sad that it might take a pandemic for these things to be addressed, but uh, I'm ever the optimist and so I agree with you, don't waste a good crisis. Uh, much of the uh, sort of initiative devising work though in my view has already been done for for planning in Victoria over many years we've seen red tape reviews and uh, ideas explored about things like the sorts of things that I've been talking about just now about uh, planning scheme amendment independent review at that very early stage uh, Anna Cronin's report that was released uh, towards the end of 2019 as the, in her role as the red tape uh, uh, commissioner, uh, revealed lots and lots of opportunities to, uh, to sort of fix the system, I suppose, or to, to make significant improvements to it. Uh, 
uh, I think at some point in her report she acknowledged that uh, in her analysis there were some billions, it might have been three, I can't remember, that could be saved in the uh, in the economy if her initiatives initiatives were implemented. But we just need government to get on and implement them. And uh, I remain terribly worried when we do all of this great work like the Red Tape Review that we respond quickly and uh, get a couple of things going, but it's only the, often only the low-hanging fruit before that, re- that report or those initiatives get shelved or get a bit too hard or a bit complicated and, uh, and don't necessarily uh, make those um, more systemic changes that, that would be required to, to uh, improve some of those processes and the like. Thank you to Song Bowden Planners, who offer excellent personalised service. Call Dave Song or Dan Bowden through details on our website. Also, we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. Now planners affect everyone's life all the time when they're in the public domain, perhaps in their primary residence. Have we forgotten as professionals the importance we have on civic society and allied professionals? Uh, yeah, I've um, I've often described planners as the GPs of cities and, and and places and the environment and the development community. I think we have a really important role to play in triaging proposals and strategies and to diagnose problems and uh, and and perhaps solve some of them on our own as planners. But mostly the problems presented to planning GPs are really complex and given the inherently complex nature of cities and places and people, uh, so often the best uh, planning solutions are found where planning GPs collaborate with specialists to come up with uh, ideas to improve and manage places. And for me, it's this diversity of discipline that creates the best outcomes and it allows planners to exercise uh, our best skills, which is to balance all of these considerations in the best interests of a community who very often have a, a very significant fear of change and a lack of understanding about all of the benefits that can arise when a city is being improved. So sometimes I think we have lost sight of the role of the planner to deal with this high-level balance. Uh, You know, we're producing basic subdivision permits for residential estates at the moment with 160 conditions on them uh, and producing 20-page further information requests for permit applications. And planning has sort of become this very easy dumping ground for everybody else's detail and regulation Uh, because the planning system tends to facilitate relatively easily 
uh, enforcement when something goes wrong and it's uh, other systems like building or traffic management for, at the council or um, sort of health and wellbeing requirements arising from other council departments tend to be more difficult to, to enforce when something something goes wrong. But what that means is that planners have to assess and do all of the detailed design work at a much earlier stage in the process than is often possible. And, you know, I take the example of ESD assessments, which at one point were being required to identify before you get a planning permit, what type of appliances were required in apartments in order to achieve a particular Green Star rating. And, you know, that's that's just not a good use, I don't think, of uh, of the planning or planner's skill. So I have this strong sense that the system is continuing to uh, really drown in the detail and uh, I think we need to remember that the best outcomes might, in fact, be generated by us leaving some of that detail to those later design processes and phases of a project rather than requiring every single thing to be controlled and uh, dealt with in minute detail uh, up front. Tamara, that's a great observation and it brings on to the next question and that's the the concept in production called manufacturing tested, um, which is a process in manufacturing where you test what's being made to see, you know, if there are any flaws and if it's working as it should do. Do you think, you know... following on from your last answer, do you think there should be more rigorous follow-up assessing the delivery of planning outcomes um, and also the processes? It sounds like the answer is going to be yes. I absolutely agree. When I was at the city of Stonington, we used to get the team in cars every few months and drive around the city uh, observing uh, completed developments that had been approved either by the city or by the tribunal and we would have a discussion about what was controversial in the application or in the VCAT case uh, and whether it turned out okay or whether we would have done something differently uh, during the um, during the, the processing of the application and the decision that we made and I just think we don't we absolutely don't do this enough. And similarly, we don't review and monitor the impact of policy enough. Uh, I think that's largely because we have a relatively short political cycles at both state and local government levels. And because planning in this state is intrinsically tied up in politics, uh, there's just not enough time for policy to be developed, implemented, monitored and reviewed before a potential change of government that might ditch that policy and pursue a different direction. So I think the city would be a better place if we had time and space to actually give policy time to do its work. Uh, And I don't think we do enough as a profession in that monitoring, but also enough as a profession to help educate the community about planning and the wonderful things that it can bring to cities and places uh, if their fear of change can be kind of overcome. It would deliver a lot less angst when the yellow advertising sign uh, gets put up in a local street. Mara, just on that point, is there a place for a third third sort of body? And that is, I mean, I, I think we expect too much of our politicians because 
they're, they're super busy. They don't want anything controversial. Um, the government departments are very gun-shy, if I can put it that way. Mm. You know, always, you know, the media advisors are running, you know, running the departments basically. Is there sort of a third element that can promote this, you know, good discussion? And there used to be those sort of things um, about what makes for better better living and better cities. You know, in some of the travelling that I've done either um, personally or through the uh, VPLA study tours that we've run in recent years, it's often struck me when we meet with other uh, international government professionals and private sector professionals that it, that a number of those cities and bodies uh, seem to engage much more closely with the university sector and the research sector. And I'm, I'm perhaps a bit more in the dark about how that happens in in Melbourne or it's not happening at all in the same way. But there are a number of initiatives that seem to me to have occurred in good initiatives that have occurred in cities overseas where that third sector that you talk about is the university and research sector and uh, partnering very closely with uh, government agencies but also the private sector to uh explore the idea to uh, develop the policy, whatever it might be. And I just wonder whether that's perhaps something that we haven't done as uh, directly uh, here in Victoria that uh, that Victoria could benefit from. That's certainly something that we've spoken to um, some of our university um, podcasts about in the, in the past, which has been a really, really interesting um, discussion. So I highly recommend um, having a listen to that our listeners. Um, Tamara, another question we had for you was um, looking at different states in terms of um, different approaches to um, to the law, but also to planning. Are there examples that you've seen um, that you think warrant um, further review or analysis um, in terms of using those really good examples of how things could be done better? Uh, yeah, I think Victoria's system... Uh, uh, planning system it generally gets a pretty good rap uh, in terms of uh, uh, comparison with the systems in other states. Uh, so I think more commonly it's other states looking to Victoria to work out how we do it and whether they can adopt those things there. Uh, I'm a big advocate for third-party rights and uh, it's something that uh, has always distinguished our system in Victoria from that in New South Wales in particular. Uh, I think that better outcomes are usually achieved where there's been a helpful collaboration to solve a problem and where there's a diversity of thought and perspectives brought to the decision-making table and third-party rights are crucial to, to that. Uh, I also think it's a characteristic that has helped protect our system against levels of corruption that have been experienced in other states because even if an applicant has got to the council, uh, so to speak, uh, review at VCAT is still always a possibility on an appeal brought by an objector and uh, triggering that independent review by by a uh, by a tribunal. So. Uh, I think that's a, it, it, as I said, it's a key distinguishing feature of uh, of the Victorian system, but one which I think is uh, well worth 
protecting. Yeah. No, I, I think you know we've all Victorians have always prided themselves on having the best of everything, <laughs> but uh, but I, I suspect our review system is slipping, and um, uh, uh, we just need to always be focused on improvements. And I think that yeah, there is a possibility of slippage all the time. Um, now I've got a I've got a joke for you. What's the difference between a good lawyer and a bad lawyer? <laughs> Tamara? Is that is that rhetorical or have you got an answer? <laughs> Jess, Jess, what's the difference between a good lawyer and a bad lawyer? I'll let you, I'll, I'll tell you. A bad lawyer can let a case go, drag on for several years. A good lawyer can make it last much longer. Yeah. <laughs> right. So so now we do need lawyers. And there was there's always been a push, Tamara, to you know, get rid of the lawyers out of the planning system just so that we can get all the techno technocrats to run the system. I've always been nervous about that approach. Um, we need lawyers, amongst other matters, to make sure that due process is followed. D discuss? <laughs> uh, well, I suppose it goes uh, a little bit to your previous uh, joke slash question uh, about good lawyers and bad lawyers because uh, I think a good lawyer has many of the characteristics of a good planner. And so the two disciplines to me have always functioned quite well together. Uh, and, they're, and they're both disciplines that are needed to, to make the system work. Uh, I think a good lawyer as with a good planner is sort of strategic in their thinking. Uh, you need to be able to listen to a wide-ranging set of facts and issues and to sort of characterise them into relevant, irrelevant, helpful, unhelpful, uh, and to work out what aspects of the law are of assistance or not and then to kind of package all of that up in an ordered and logical way and devise some strategy for implementation. Uh, lawyers are, uh, need to be exceptionally good listeners and good communicators and uh, sometimes clients will sit and deliver, you know, an hour of history about a matter to tell you uh, to explain their massive big problem. Uh, but it might be one little sentence in response to a question that you ask that reveals a fact or circumstance that could absolutely win and nail the case for you. Uh, so... The lawyer's involvement in those planning processes, I think, is often criticised because there's a sense of hearings becoming legalistic or unnecessarily long or, uh, or questioning of the material that is being put before a tribunal member or a panel. But it's the testing of that material that's put before a tribunal or a panel that enables us to ensure that what it is that's being proposed uh, has been thoroughly thought through and that the consequences of a particular proposal or a particular new policy direction have also been uh, thoroughly uh, thought through and that we can have confidence in, in, the, uh, in, in getting a good outcome. Um, we deal with issues in planning where there's a lot at stake and the right to representation to ensure that processes imposed upon participants in a planning process are fair and transparent is uh, fundamentally a key role that 
uh, lawyers play and can bring to the table. Um, the law that's concerned with nat natural justice and procedural fairness is really one of the few protections that participants have in the planning system against uh, uh, corruption and against any action by government that may be motivated more by politics than by good planning outcomes. So I don't shy away from the very important role that lawyers have to play in keeping governments and decision makers honest. And in that role, Tamara, um, over many years, I would imagine you've witnessed many advocates. What are the qualities that impress you the most? Uh, yeah, so lawyers are obviously also very good storytellers and uh, I challenge anyone to listen to the opening submissions by uh, put at a, at a tribunal hearing or a panel hearing by one of the great planning silks uh, in a structured, clear and logical way and to not then agree that those submissions are of great assistance to helping the decision maker understand what the case is about uh, and what he, what issues he or she is going to have to grapple with throughout throughout the case. So I think those qualities of uh, being able to distill propositions to uh, very easily understood and well communicated um, um, principles uh, is uh, is most definitely something that impresses me. And uh, there's sort of the need to be strategic to devise a case structure uh, and to fundamentally behave in a fair way that's fair not just to the client or to the court but also to the other parties and participants in a process uh, they are uh, they're all really significant and important qualities and I mentioned Phil Bissett before. Uh, he was as I said the first advocate that I saw in uh, in in action in a uh, in a planning matter, and uh, I think he had all of those qualities in spades. It was a real privilege to work with him and learn from him. Yeah. He, he was an absolutely beautiful man, Tamara. Um, lots of love for him. Um, the recent uh, interim findings in, into the Royal Commission to Police Misconduct in Victoria has raised the co the, the concept of noble corruption. Now, without going to the specifics of that that case. Can we just talk about corruption and that concept of noble corruption? That is that the participants aren't receiving anything back, but they believe their cause is right and therefore cut corners. Any thoughts on that, Tamara? Yeah, I have a real concern about a bit of a direction that planning schemes are heading in the moment, heading at the moment with the introduction of this concept of significant community benefit, uh, this notion that uh, you might be able to get approval for a higher building, for example, than the preferred height limit if you're offering up some other significant community benefit to, uh, to uh, justify the need, if you like, for additional height as a, as a simple example. Um, the notion to me of sort of significant community benefit is really grossly uncertain. Uh, it, it makes for interpretation of what is ultimately legislation in a planning scheme extremely difficult. 
and I think it also represents this very slippery slope down the path of corruption where we find applicants presenting good proposals but being told, well, that's okay, but uh, what else have you got for me? And I think that that's only a small step away from here's the brown paper bag full of cash. I think there's a there's a line to be drawn there and uh, it's very important not to uh, not to cross it in a poli- by by deliver- by trying to uh, draw the concept in through a policy about significant community benefit. It seems to me that if a building proposed that's over a preferred building height is a good building and doesn't result in any additional unreasonable impacts uh, over and above a building at the preferred height, then it should be approved because it's a good building, not because there's been some a cash payment made to the council for an unrelated matter, even not in a private uh, brown paper bag. <laughs> Tamara, that, that brings another thing. You know, they say sunlight's the best disinfectant. And we've pushed in the podcast that the concept that, you know, all information should should be free, should be let free. And there, that there's a, a general sense of closing planning files so that you can't see what's happened in the past. Have you got any sort of principal position on those sort of things? Uh, I think planning uh, ultimately is about public decision-making. So, you know, before planning existed, we had this sort of um, private uh, private set of development controls that evolved through things like restrictive covenants for single dwellings on subdivisions, you know, back in the early 1900s and 1800s, et cetera. But uh, fundamentally, planning is a, is a, a, a public uh, invention, if you like, construct. And so I, I don't understand why it becomes necessary to shut down transparency and information, uh, particularly when it comes to things like uh, recommendations by uh, by the public service to um, politicians <clears throat> about their decision making. Uh, I think that uh, there's there's a real there's a there's a culture of fear that develops where uh, where you don't have a, a public service who's able to um, put hand on heart and say this is my recommendation. And this is my professional recommendation, and you can go and make a different decision if you like. Uh, but but I'm uh, I'm able to be uh, open about what that what that looks like. And it was one of the things that I found extremely difficult in my time in local government uh, was that it was not uncommon to be. Uh, I, you know, hand on heart, I'm a bit more of a pro-development person than an anti-development person uh, and I always be looking for ways in which something could be maybe amended and improved in order to generate approval uh, for, for a proposal rather than a refusal. But it was not uncommon for me to be uh, asked by councillors, you know what, Tamara, it'd be really nice if you recommended refusal every now and again and particularly on that project down the road from me in my house, et cetera, et cetera. So, I, I think the sort of the sanctity of the um, of the profession of the public service <clears throat> is uh, is really important. 
So just looking forward um, into COVID recovery, what role do you see planning in having in this important process that we're all going to be dealing with for many years to come? Uh, yeah, well, I think uh, there's a lot of uh, angst and nervousness at the moment about you know, government debt and uh, there's going to be high unemployment and all of those sorts of things. I think that governments should always be in debt because it means that they've been investing in the community, uh, whether it be by way of large infrastructure or smaller community projects. Um, I think we saw governments in Victoria strive for surpluses for 20 or 30 years, but it meant that there was not a lot of investment in much-needed infrastructure like rail in particular. Um, And on that trajectory, it seems to me that the city would just ultimately come to a standstill. So I think that there's an opportunity for planning to uh, reassess and devise (coughs) initiatives to uh, remove unnecessary regulation like we talked about earlier and uh, to improve timeframes for decision making um, and to sort of use those use those opportunities to really uh, uh, do more than uh, deal with the low-hanging fruit in terms of the the, the role that planning and, and decision making in planning can make to generate economic activity. Tamara, as a uh, a very topical question at the moment, Tamara, as a lawyer with great respect for civil liberties, do you think we need to reaffirm basic civil rights uh, or do you see civil rights not fixed in stone but relative? Should should we be very firm about this or should we be relaxed, particularly in the post-COVID, particularly post-COVID? Well, I think we need... Yeah, I think we need to be very firm about it. These These are... fundamental principles that uh, have stood the test of time and served us very well for a very long time. And uh, as soon as you start to uh, uh, consolidate power or fail to allow independent review or fail to understand the positions of people who might be affected by decision-making, you run the risk of ill-informed decisions being made with very significant unintended consequences. And uh, to me, that uh, applies not just in the sort of broader notion of of civil rights or a right to protest or to go outside or or any of those sorts of things, but certainly uh, within the context of the planning system, that right to transparent decision-making, as we were talking about earlier, is is fundamental. But... uh, but in a sort of post-COVID or, or current COVID uh, environment, uh, it seems to me that there's this potential for much greater suspicion and mistrust of government in Victoria, which is disappointing because I think early on the states had really come into their own in leadership and representation of the interests of their own citizens. Uh, I think we all have a role to play that goes beyond wearing a mask and staying at home and getting tested. And, for example, uh, with VPLA, the the pandemic has really forced us to totally rethink how we have delivered services to members. Uh, Our seminars and events were always held in person, but, of course, the pandemic has forced us to move to online platforms. But what what that's done is created this really wonderful opportunity for us to 
reach members who we've not been so connected with or not been able to be so connected with before because of distance or the times and locations that we tend to uh, hold our seminars and events. And I think the other thing that it's enabled us to do at VPLA is to try and expand the relevance of the association for members into areas that are more about uh, broader issues in society and business. And so, for example, um, while we've uh, uh, sadly seen the uh, loss of a number of members in the last two years uh, to mental health uh, issues, we uh, have committed to really raising awareness of this tragic issue for professionals. And I think the COVID environment has forced us to or or, um, provided us with an impetus to think about issues broader than just planning and development uh, in the context of the association. So um, we regularly write about mental health in the VPLA magazine. Uh, we've used the period of the pandemic pandemic to run a number of online webinars uh, with a workplace psychologist to uh, help people remember that there's never no one to turn to. And uh, I think it's... Um, an important uh, adjunct to a professional association like VPLA to be able to have a a forum to be able to uh, have people explore those things. Completely agree. I think it's been a a very tragic couple of years in in our industry with a number of um, tragedies. So, yeah, definitely commend the work that VPLA is doing in that space. So, Tamara, if you had six months away from your normal work to undertake a pure research project, what would it be on? Uh, well, I, uh, I obviously I've had notice of this of this particular question, Jess. I, I, mean, I did uh, struggle to uh, think about what I would do that didn't involve um, running away from it all and running a bed and breakfast in the country and cooking eggs for people every morning. Uh, but I decided that professional research uh, would be I would run a research project about how we could uh, improve the ways in which we. Uh, help people feel connected with the places that they love and to educate about the good things that planning and development can bring. So the research would establish a model or a system for helping communities really overcome their inherent fear of change and to understand that there are enormous benefits for them personally that arise from things like immigration, multiculturalism, uh, economic growth, planning, development, all of those things that we deal with on a daily basis. Well, Tamara, uh, the question is next, um, how do you refresh and relax? And uh, are you still running those superb dinner parties? I I seem to remember I went to your very first dinner party. You did go to my very first dinner party uh, and uh, I still remember what I cooked too. It was a uh, uh, I'm sure that we, I think that we did pumpkin soup. I wasn't sure about the entree, but in thinking about it, I am sure that uh, I did a little eye fillet with some superbly done semi-sun-dried tomatoes, and it would have been sun-dried tom- would have been sun-dried tomatoes. I don't think we did semi-sun-dried tomatoes in the '90s, uh, and uh, and some pesto and stuff. So yes, I do still cook a lot. Uh, it's a um, it's it's like a meditation for me. So it's uh, I have great joy in popping along to the Queen Vic market on a Saturday morning 
with a free day ahead and uh, finding some things to cook and then going home and working out what I'm going to do with it all. And then I'll, by about 11 o'clock in the morning, I'll be on the text to some friends saying, you know, I've just gone and bought three kilos of lamb shoulder. Can you come over for dinner and eat it with me? Uh, so I cook a lot. Um, I escape. I love to get out of Melbourne and travel, not necessarily internationally, but locally, find a cottage somewhere to retreat for the weekend. Uh, I'm a keen amateur photographer, uh, so I do a lot of photography, uh, watch the footy a lot, and uh, big cats fan like you, Pete. And um, this could be a year tomorrow. <laughs> Uh, I've just started singing in a band, uh, which I'm really loving and something that I've always wanted to do. What type of music? Oh, just sort of rock, folk <laughs> type, you know, pop type music. What, what's the name of the band tomorrow? Uh, St Bones is the name of the band. Yeah. St Bones. Won't be found anywhere playing publicly <laughs> anytime soon, but it's a lot of fun. Really enjoying it. Yeah. Is it sort of is is it metal? Is it thrash? Is it uh, hard rock? Is it folk? No, no, no. It's just uh, it, it's it's more uh, rock folk. Like we write all our own songs, so we don't do any we don't do any covers or anything. Uh, and it's not a band full of lawyers, Jess. No, there's one other lawyer, uh, and. Um, Oh, actually, no, that's not true. Two other lawyers, sorry. And you, uh, <laughs> you should appear at the Vapor Ball. Yeah, no chance. Uh, no chance. No chance. <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, I'm really, I've, I've just started doing that this year and I'm, I'm loving it. It's a beautiful release in rehearsals. Mm. Jess, you should get together with your violin. I mean, you've got a beautiful voice, Jess. You should. <laughs> You should sing in a band with your violin. Look, it's been it's been raised a number of times, Pete, and my Irish dancing as well. So, um, combination <laughs> of those factors. Excellent. We'll <laughs> write an appropriate. We'll write an appropriate song. For, we've got actually a song with a cello in it at the moment, so uh, it's not um, it's not out of the realms of possibility <laughs> that we could draw you in, Jess. <laughs> now, now tomorrow, this is the point of the podcast where we talk about podcast extra, mm-hmm. and that's something you've read, seen, watched, done, changed in what you do that might be of interest to your listeners or it can even be a confession? <laughs> uh, well, it probably is a little bit of a confession. I uh, I was a very late adopter of streamed music. Uh, I had stu- stubbornly and very old-fashionedly taken the view that I wanted to own my music and not rent it. And uh, being a regular attendee at music festivals and the like, I wanted to support artists by buying CDs from them rather than from streaming services. But uh, but last year I was coaxed into getting Apple Music and uh, I have absolutely loved having it. So it's a confession that my stubbornness did not serve me well up until that point. Uh, listening to music is a really huge part of my day. It's a bit of a mantra for me particularly during COVID that we we must listen to music each and every day at some point it has an enormous effect on me uh I found an old box of cassettes uh from my childhood uh a few months ago when everyone was going about um cleaning out their houses because they had nothing else to do on the weekends and uh I've been making playlists of them and uh picking a different artist each day and listening to their sort of best of catalogue. 
And I have a number of mates who share my music interest. And so we've been uh, making recommendations to each other each day about what to explore next. Uh, doing the same thing with my cooking mates, the two, about uh, sharing inspiration for what to put on the menu during the pandemic. But it's been a really good way to bring a bit of structure to this sort of nebulous blancmange that is world in life in the world of a, a, a pandemic. So well, I don't think it might be a new thing for listeners because I was being a total dinosaur on this issue. I, uh, I'd say go and find some old music and explore some new artists with mates that, uh, and always, always listen to music every single day. Oh, oh that's nice. Uh, now, Jess, what's, uh, what, what have you been, what have you got for Podcast Extra? Um, I've been doing a lot of puzzles recently, Pete. I've, um, a couple of friends and I have been um, doing a bit, of a, a bit of a puzzle exchange um, of the New Yorker magazine puzzles. So they're a thousand piece puzzles. They generally take at least sort of two or three days to get through. Um, but for those of us in Melbourne, I mean, we've had some fairly rubbish weather over the last couple of months, um, not so much in the last week or two, but um, it's been a really amazing escape and a, and a way to spend quite a long time, given that we're stuck inside. Um, just sitting down, re- refreshing and relaxing and spending quality time. So it's been really, really lovely. What about you, Pete? Well, it's early spring, Jess, and some of those seeds, some of those gum seeds that I collected and, and nurtured and I've, I've actually put in the ground now. So I've been growing uh, I've been growing gum seeds oh, wow. that are Indigenous to a place that I've got. And uh, so last weekend I put the first lot in and one thing I'll say is that you never stop learning. I mean, you would think, I mean, I've planted millions, of, well, not millions, but lots and lots, thousands of trees, not probably thousands, hundreds of trees in the past. But You planted um, two trees. <laughs> <laughs> now, in, in, you know, with, with planting out of the little seed, the little um, uh, tube stock, it, it's a very delicate business. And so you're always learning. So there's always new techniques on how to improve. So I've been been doing that. I've got another lot to put in this weekend. We're going to get some good rain, which is fantastic. So that's very satisfying, putting in the, the little gums and uh, sort of re, reclaiming some of that area. And also, just in a couple of weeks, my bees arrive. So I'm super excited. And uh, you're going to come and help me and get dressed up in a bee suit with me. Sounds great. <laughs> come here. Well, well, Tamara, it's been a wonderful, wonderful podcast for us and um, we, we're very grateful for the, all the great support Veepla has given us over the years and your insights and, and just magic touch, fantastic. Well, thank you. So, I've thoroughly enjoyed our chat. It was uh, really wonderful and thanks again for asking. Thanks, Tamara. Good on you, Jess. Thanks, listeners. Bye.